You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome to this episode of On Watch. This is the Judicial Watch podcast, where we take a deep dive on stories and investigations that are underreported or ignored by most of the news media. And also here, we take time to unwind complex Judicial Watch investigations and give you the backstory and context that you'll get nowhere else. Be sure to follow on watch, whether you use Spotify or some other place to uh, to look up and to follow and record or listen to your uh, your podcasts. So follow on watch, give us a rating, share this podcast with your friends and family. We appreciate all of your support. This week, we are speaking with Ken Silva, an excellent reporter from the Epic Times who has been looking into the Wolverine Watchman story and the supposed plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer this past fall. Uh, actually, in, in it would have been the fall of 2020. Uh, Ken Silva covers national security issues for the Epic Times. His reporting background also includes cybersecurity crime and offshore finance, including three years as a reporter in the British Virgin Islands and two years in the Cayman Islands. Ken, welcome to On Watch. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a real honor to be invited by Judicial Watch. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you on board and uh, to have a chance to talk to you uh, in our podcast On Watch. Uh, We've been running this now for a few weeks. We've got a few episodes up. We've talked about everything under the sun from uh, kind of the backstory of 9-11 and Anwar al-Awlaki, the spiritual leader of uh, the 9-11 hijackers, to COVID-19 facts from a famous virologist, uh, Dr. Stephen Hatfill. Uh, We've also uh, looked at uh, election uh, questions and and sort of, uh, I'm I'm always reluctant to use the F word, fraud, um, but just let's just say irregularities that have occurred in places like, you know, Wisconsin and Arizona, Pennsylvania and other places. Um, And we've, we've really done a lot of digging in on using the Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA, the open records law, uh, which is a big part of what we do at Judicial Watch to uncover records and documents. And so uh, that's sort of the lineup that's taken us to the point where we are today. And Ken, we're thrilled to have you on because you've got really some tremendous reporting you've done for the Epic Times. And uh, today we're going to talk about this really curious case of the the Wolverine Watchmen, uh, a supposed militia group in Michigan, and this plot uh, to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But you've got some really great reporting uh, also on other subjects. I'm just scrolling through the last last few articles you've done, some some really important exclusives. Uh, Postal inspectors using hacking tools to break into iPhones, uh, a review of what's been going on with the Durham investigation. Uh, you know, the, the, the plight of some of the January 6th uh, protest prisoners that have been arrested. Crazy stuff on military contracting and uh, accountability with respect to what happened in Afghanistan. Just a great lineup of stories. 
So thanks for coming in and talking to us today about the Wolverine Watchmen. Yeah, th thanks again for having me. Uh, you're reading my bylines, and it's been a blast to report all these crazy stories, but I, I'm not sure it's a good sign for the country, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, uh, I mean, if you had one third these number of stories, uh, you know, in the past couple of months, people would normally be shocked and just, you know, scandalized by the volume of corruption. But the stuff you've been able to knock out week after week, uh, it says a lot. Well, first of all, it says a lot about your good reporting, but it also says a lot about how incredibly screwed up the country is. And also, frankly, the Biden administration is because of the, the, the scope and the scale of all these various, I mean, it's in, in essence, it's corruption, but it's also misconduct, it's abuse of the Constitution. It's just a lot of crazy stuff we're dealing with as a country. Indeed, and with all the insanity going on over the last two years, I'd be willing to bet that the vast majority of Americans only have a vague recollection of the supposed plot to capture the governor of Michigan. I think most people probably think about it and say, oh yeah, remember in 2020 where those crazy uh, neo-Nazi Trump supporters try tried to you know, do terrible things to one of our elected officials? Oh boy, I, I'm glad the FBI is here to protect us and you know, get these, get these right-wing lunatics off the streets. And the reason I think most Americans have this feeling is because this issue has has hardly been reported in the so-called mainstream media. And there's a reason for that. One outlet that's done a great job, the, the outlet that kind of broke this open was BuzzFeed News. Reporters Ken Bensinger and Jessica Garrison, I really got to give them a shout out because they did the early work on this last July. Uh, I wasn't with the Epoch Times at that time, just for your information, if you're wondering why I didn't break the story. But uh, anyways, these reporters set out to find, you know, what's motivating these uh, fringe right-wing groups into doing radical things like trying to capture a sitting governor. And I got to give them a lot of credit. They, they didn't fall into their confirmation bias. They followed the facts. And the facts revealed that this is a plot heavily infiltrated by the FBI the defendants are even arguing that they were entrapped, that the FBI may have, you know, kind of pushed this along and, and kind of enticed them into this wild plot. Uh, 14 people were charged, and it turns out that there were 12 undercover feds, federal informants, and uh, also two undercover FBI agents. So, you know, do the math, that's about half of the group were feds. And of course, that raises questions: Would this plot even have gotten off? Would this plot have even have gotten off the ground if not for the FBI? Ken, you are exactly correct, and this is an instance where, over and over and over again, I don't care if it's domestic terrorism or it's something related to uh, Islamist uh, supremacists or Islamist terrorists, the we have seen over and over again where the FBI. Uh, essentially manufactures these cases. And, uh, you know, in my in my past adult life, many moons ago, uh, I was an Army counterintelligence officer, and uh, I conducted all sorts of counterintelligence operations, offensive ones, which are essentially double, a, double agent operations, 
uh, I, I looked for and found and uh, engaged in investigations of and stopped foreign intelligence officers from spying against us. I'm a graduate of what's referred to uh, you know, colloquially as the farm, uh, Camp Perry. I was a clandestine human intelligence case officer. So I know of what I speak because I've done it for a living. And I can tell you that the old joke for recruiting people was, hey, you've got all the character defects and personality disorders we're looking for, right? You're a prime candidate for recruitment. Right. And, and that's what the FBI looks for. I mean, they do, not, they do not go out and find, you know, Rhodes Scholars and Boy Scouts. They find people that are compromised and are susceptible to this sort of conduct, and then they recruit them. And I'd like to know your opinion, you know, of the defendants that are out there in this one case, there's several we could talk about, but on the, on the, the Wolverine Watchman case, none, none of these guys are, you know, going to go out and win the Nobel Prize, are they? Certainly not. No, the, the alleged leader, uh, just, this is just one of the many, you know, uh, pieces of damning evidence that shows these guys were, you know, not capable of executing a sophisticated plot to, you know, breach government security and capture a governor. I'll just give you one example. Uh, there were text messages between the co-defendants and some of the undercover feds making fun of the so-called ringleader, calling him, his nickname was Captain Autism. So, you know, you got to ask yourself, is somebody named, nicknamed Captain Autism capable of uh, pulling off a plot like this. And uh, you, uh, so when you're talking, you mentioned a key word, you know, manufacture. And I, I don't know if you read the book Terror Factory by Trevor Aronson, but he was an investigative journalist, or so he still is, that investigated the FBI's operation against uh, Muslims to crack down on domestic terrorism. And he found that uh, of 508 Muslim terror defendants, 243 were targeted through an FBI informant, 158 had been caught in an FBI terrorism sting, and 45 had encountered an agent provocateur. So it really seems like the FBI has a playbook and they kind of dusted it off for this Michigan case. So let's, let's give our listeners sort of an overview or let's get them up to speed on what exactly this whole uh, kidnap plot concerning Governor Whitmer was all about. Give us sort of the, you know, if we're tuning in late, what's what's the plot summary that our listeners need to understand? Sure. So Michigan and the Midwest, uh, I, I'm in Cleveland right now. Uh, so I have a little bit of familiarity growing up in the rural areas. Uh, we've always been a hotbed of gun enthusiasts and um, militia members, um, you know, people skeptical of government authority. and uh, there's been a lot of Facebook groups and people interacting, you know, discussing kind of fantasies about, you know, taking on the government and things like that. Uh, things really heated up, of course, when the pandemic broke out and many of these governors issued stay at home orders. And that was kind of the impetus for this plot. Uh, the, the, the defendants were just outraged. Uh, they, I, you know, they said this is this is absolute tyranny when the government orders everybody to stay at home. This is insane. We got to do something. Uh, they they're discussing all these, um, you know, the possibilities. And this is where the first main 
federal informant came in. He's an unnamed Iraqi war veteran who was browsing on Facebook and came across these uh, Michigan Wolverine watchmen and became involved with the group and saw all the violence they were talking about. And as a as a former you know, military officer, an Iraq war veteran, he was alarmed. He went to the FBI and said, you know, these, these guys are up to no good. And uh, the FBI sent him back in as an informant. And the case kind of uh, spiraled from there where uh, this guy, again, his name isn't public, but he's been nicknamed Dan in all the court records. And he started as an informant on the fringe of the group, and he eventually rose to, I think, like the number two guy was a Fed, uh, which, again, lends, I think, a little bit of credibility to the defendant's arguments that uh, this was, you know, guided by the Feds. And, and of course, the number one guy they refer to as Captain Autism. Yes, so this, yes, of course. This gives you an idea of, you know, whether the guy was actually a, you know, sort of a directed puppet or whether he was truly out in front, you know, a, a mastermind who's, you know, scheming. So I, I guess the way that I look at this is that these are instances where uh, there's sort of opportunities that present themselves, but then the FBI jumps in with both feet and they end up, you know, recruiting, organizing, equipping, arming, training, and then dispatching these guys to go do stuff. And uh, what starts out is sort of a disgruntled guys hanging out in somebody's basement or some trailer, all of a sudden is, you know, is supposed to take on the specter of being, you know, an imminent threat to uh, the Republic. And, and it just, it seems so overblown. And it also seems that, you know, the FBI is providing these guys with a level of knowledge and expertise and organization, even equipment, way beyond anything that they would have inherently or organically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I should also mention that another key federal informant is a man with the last name, or Stephen Robeson. His nickname is Roby in all the court filings. And we can name him because he's been accused uh, in open court. It's not it's not a secret. He was a informant in the 80s and 90s. And this guy's got this guy's a, got a criminal record, you know, long as your sleeve. He's been charged with uh, having sex with a minor, all kinds of firearm charges, uh, fraud. And he founded the Wisconsin Three Percenters, another uh, militia group. And he was really one of the main drivers of getting these people together. Uh, uh, they held a big meeting in Dublin, Ohio in mid-2020 and, and things like that. And, and the interesting thing with him is that the, the, the FBI has since arrested and charged him with defrauding a couple. Um, he had some sham charity in Wisconsin, and he got some couple to donate a bunch of money while he was a federal informant. And so the significance of this is there's a lot of speculation that they charged him just so he won't be taking the stand in the Michigan case. They, they kind of want to get him out of the case, if you know what I mean. Right. And that's, that, that's another standard tactic, frankly, of the FBI when these confidential human source operations go sideways is they end up 
take, taking cooperating witnesses or people that they think they have under control. And when they get a little sketchy or when the story starts to fall apart, uh, they'll arrest them or they'll have them charged in some other case to either destroy their credibility or to shut them up. Um, I, Judicial Watch has done lots of investigations along these lines, and we've seen it happen over and over again. So, you know, it's early October of 2020, and all of a sudden the Detroit Free Press comes out with an article, and, uh, you know, the, the, the headline is, Militia Group Plotted to Kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Feds Say. And that's, again, the early part of October 2020. The federal government has charged six people with conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in an alleged domestic terrorist plot, according to a newly unsealed court records. So, I mean, talk about an October surprise. Uh, this is classic. And in large part, of course, the media narrative is as soon as you say militia, uh, you know that that's code word for Trump supporter. Um, and then it goes on, the story goes on to say seven others face state charges brought by Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. All 13 are in custody. Members of a militia group purchased weapons, conducted surveillance, and held training and planning meetings, but were foiled in part because the FBI was able to infiltrate the group with informants, according to charges officials planned to detail on Thursday. That's the initial reporting out of the Detroit Free Press. I guess the problem is, is that it was the FBI that assisted and directed the purchasing of weapons and the surveillance operations and the training and planning meetings. And that's what's scrupulously absent from the reporting back in October. Sure, sure. Yeah, you mentioned October surprise. And, you know, as a journalist, I haven't found any smoking gun evidence that this investigation was politically motivated. Uh, and there's tons and tons of evidence out there. If anybody has a PACER account, you can go look at the uh, court records. It's all there. It's like reading a spy novel. It's, it's actually kind of enjoyable if you want some uh, some late night reading or something like that. So I, I can't say for sure that this was a politically motivated investigation as a journalist, but as a skeptic, I certainly can't blame Trump supporters for making that allegation. Well, and of course, this is the same FBI that just about five years ago, five years and a couple of weeks, uh, or the same FBI that was involved in this phony Russia dossier. And, a, you know, in my opinion, uh, essentially a soft coup being run against President Trump by the likes of, you know, Comey and Strzok and Page. And there's a litany of names out of the FBI. Of course. And we should. Well, sorry to interrupt. But no, yeah. go ahead. We, we were talking before we went live and yeah, the, the head of the Detroit FBI field office that was uh, ostensibly or presumably overseeing this Michigan plot was transferred to D.C. In, in a promotion and he's overseeing the January 6th investigation. Uh, so the significance of that is unclear. But again, as a skeptic, uh, you know, I, I don't blame people who, who think that's very, very suspicious. Yeah, and, and also there have been any number of different people who have been cited uh, in FBI parlance. They would call it lacking candor, right? Mm -hmm. Where FBI agents have either lied or withheld information or twisted the truth. Um, and then you've got this sort of odd behavior. I mean, so there was a corrupt uh, element leading the FBI. And we've mentioned Comey, McCabe, Strzok, Page, uh, the attorney Kleinsmith, who was uh, 
deliberately fabricated a document uh, against Carter Page. Uh, there are others, and they're essentially dirty cops, really, uh, and they're part of this coup against Trump. But even once they're out and you have somebody like Christopher Ray coming in as the FBI director, you know, he's the kind of guy who says that, uh, you know, Antifa isn't really an organization. It's a thing. You know, it's an ideology. This doesn't really engender confidence among people that are looking at the FBI as a very troubled organization. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you just hit a, on a key point there. When people lose faith in institutions, uh, that's when conspiracy theorists theories flourish, right? So, you know, we don't, we might not know what's going on, but the fact that these institutions are, uh, if we want to be kind to them, we could say bungling these investigations so badly, it's leading to distrust and a proliferation of conspiracy theories. And then they turn around and say, oh, no, we need to censor the internet to stop, stop people from, you know, discussing these things, when really, it all stems from the fact that our institutions are crumbling, I think, quite frankly. Yeah. And sadly, I mean, I'm very proud to have you on the show and I, your reporting is exceptional. Epic Times does some great work. But, you know, there's also people that are that are cheerleading from the media. Right. So the minute you say Michigan militia, they all start screaming Trump, Trump, Trump. Um, but really, even at the time that this occurred, one of the guys who was involved in a ringleader, supposedly, of this Michigan militia group is a guy named Brandon Caserta. At least mm -hmm. he was identified early on as being somebody involved in the plot. And they, they refer to him as being some kind of Trumpster. He's not at all. In fact, there's video of him uh, on YouTube where he's got an anarchist flag behind his head and he's on this YouTube chatting away. He's clearly not a a conservative or Republican, a Trumpster, or whatever you want to call him, the guy's an anarchist. So, I, I mean, they're mischaracterized and, and misrepresented. Uh, and that's 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 a problem from from journalism and, and media and public information generally. Uh, sure. But again, that just compounds the problems that the FBI has as an institution. Yeah, I will. I will say it's possible that maybe Brandon Caserta was a right wing anarchist, you know, like the Murray Rothbard and narco capitalists, uh, you know, school of thought. I think these guys were kind of radical libertarians. They certainly weren't hardcore Trumpers, though, and they were not racist. Uh, the, again, this is all in court records. They uh, were decrying uh, the killing of Breonna Taylor and uh, other police shootings like that. This was more of an anti government. Uh, organization, but certainly not racist. And they, you know, they they came to the defense of, uh, you know, all colors who are oppressed by government. And I'm not defending them, of course, because they're, you know, obviously had some serious issues. But uh, but it's, it's, I think it's yeah. I think you're right. I think it's important to understand their their ideology, where are these folks coming from, and how did they how did they come up on the radar screen of the FBI, and then how were their sort of belief systems and their uh, their dissatisfaction, how was that used as leverage or manipulation to get them, you know, motivated and organized, right? Exactly. And again, this this reminds me of the uh, the playbook to trap Muslims. When you when you read about these cases, it's always an FBI agent going up to some 
some poor guy with family in Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq and saying, hey, isn't it so terrible that Barack Obama, George Bush and the Americans are bombing your family? They're killing innocent Muslims in the Middle East. Isn't that so bad? Don't you want to do something about that? Here's $10,000. Look into the camera and say that you love Osama bin Laden. Oh, okay. 20 years of prison for you. Exactly. And and the problem is that a lot of this stuff does not get any real scrutiny. It does not get a hard look. And, uh, it, you know, very unpleasant, very difficult questions aren't asked. Because in some cases, it's kind of a tough sell to to uh, to to develop or to get sort of public sympathy or awareness about some of these people whether they're these folks that have been kind of duped by the FBI for one reason or another, because they're kind of looked down on. They're like, well, you're an idiot to begin with. So why should I care about how you were, uh, you know, uh, taken advantage of, which is sort of a, I mean, I get it. It's, it's a, it's a hard edged look at a very difficult situation, but the underlying question is what is the FBI doing? Why are they pursuing these cases? It's as though we have nothing else to worry about in the country. We probably have better priorities. Yeah, I, I, I you know, use the term self-licking ice cream cone. I think a lot of these agencies are looking for, you know, reasons for their own existence. And it's a lot sexier to build these high profile domestic terrorism cases than it is to, you know, make sure the trains run on time or the mail is delivered. So they want they want to build these big cases and it kind of spirals out of control. And perhaps, yeah, perhaps they even encourage them to try to gin up crime. So here's where I get frustrated looking at the Wolverine Watchman case. The minute I heard it, I contacted a colleague of mine who I've been working with for, I don't know, something like 15 years or so. And uh, I said to him, hey, wait a minute. Wasn't there another Michigan militia case that blew up? Because I was just, I just had a bad feeling about the minute I read the story in the mm -hmm. Detroit Free Press, inside of me, this this alarm bell went off from a long time ago. And sure enough, my colleague came back. He has encyclopedic knowledge about this stuff. It's almost like playing Trivial Pursuit with him, you know. He came right back and said, the Hutteries. And I said, Hutteries? What are you talking about? Anyway, he shot me back a blizzard of articles. This goes back to 2010. This is a uh, Barack Obama, Eric Holder special. Mm. This, this whole Wolverine Watchman thing is a big do over. This is so much of the plot, so much of the organization, so much of the, the MO and the tactics by the FBI is a cut and paste from a case back in 2010, mm. where, where a supposed militia group called the Hutteries uh, were gone after for again, supposedly having some seditious plot to, you know, blow stuff up and take over the government, et cetera, et cetera. And it was the same kind of FBI deal where they went in and set the whole thing up, recruited half the people involved, put it in motion. Then they arrested the people that they had recruited. And then over time, the charges were dropped. The case fell apart. Uh, a lot of the people simply walked away with little or no real charges being brought. And then some of them even flipped around and end up suing the government back uh, for, you know, false arrest or, you know, abuse of prosecutorial discretion or, 
you know, some kind of civil rights charges back against the government. And this stuck in my mind as a really bad setup job. And now, you know, fast forward 10, 12 years, and what are we looking at? The same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. I have to say, I'm, I'm underinformed about that case, but I can tell you it goes way further back than 2010. Um, I'm sure you know that. And I'm sure you're aware, and you, probably most of your listeners are aware of the church committee, which convened after Watergate, after the Watergate scandal, uh, the church committee formed to really look at the uh, the inner workings of the FBI and CIA, what they were up to in the 50s and 60s. A lot of people know this, and a lot of people know that what came out of that committee was the revelation about the FBI's COINTEL program, where they infiltrated a bunch of left-wing protesters, uh, protesting the Vietnam, you know, racial injustice, uh, I think they also infiltrated actual violent groups like the Weather Underground. Uh, they infiltrated the Black Panthers and things like that. And But a lot of people don't know that they also, the FBI infiltrated right-wing groups. An FBI informant, and this was revealed in a 300-page report issued by the committee, an FBI informant named Gary Thomas Rowe, He infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan in the 1960s, and he is highly suspected of having prodded on the uh, Burning Hand uh, church bombings, where the KKK bombed a bunch of black churches. And there is, uh, I don't have a photographic memory of this case, but there is a lot of compelling evidence suggesting that this informant Roe was prodding along might have even been uh, guilty of murder and he testified in the 1975 committee that the fbi did nothing to stop the violence that he would inform about even when he gave them an advance warning and his criminal activity went unchecked so this has a long long history it's uh and so now we look at the case what i want to do is just touch on sort of the current state of affairs in the Wolverine Watchman case right now, like the, the, the reporting you've done over the last couple of weeks, just bring us up to speed on that. And then I'd like to kind of reflect back to where you were. Let's talk about after we get sort of an update on where things currently stand. Let's do a little retrospective and talk about some other instances, maybe some other sources you've talked to. Uh, where the FBI has really gone off the rails and and really manufactured uh, other other cases, but so you know we got about a uh, fourteen people under indictment. A trial date I think is set for uh, sometime this spring, but there's been a lot of legal action even just since Christmas. So let, let's let's kind of bring folks up to speed on that. Yeah, that's right. And I should start by mentioning which I neglected to mention in, uh, earlier, that uh, three FBI agents have been pulled from this case. They won't be testifying. Uh, one was Richard Trask, who brutally beat his wife last year, and he's actually been kicked off the FBI, which uh, I understand that's pretty rare. Your conduct has to be egregious for that to happen. Uh, Henrik Impala, an agent, he's been accused of perjury in other in another case that's unrelated, uh, the government disputes those perjury charges, but nevertheless, they pulled Impala from testifying in the trial coming in March. And then there's a man named Jason Chambers, 
who ran this, this is kind of funny, actually, he ran a cybersecurity business on the side while he was investigating these Michigan guys. And he would put out these cryptic tweets from his company's account saying like, oh, a big bus coming soon, like something big in Michigan's happening. And the, the, the thought is that he's kind of like using this investigation to pump up his business which is, you know, a huge conflict of interest. Of course. So anyway, yeah. With, with all that said, the defendants in the federal case filed a motion to dismiss on Christmas Day, uh, claiming entrapment for all the reasons that we've discussed. Actually, a federal judge just tossed those charges yesterday, saying that the trials is still going to continue. Uh, but I wouldn't read too much into that. Uh, tech, uh, Typically, courts only rule on entrapment matters as like a matter. They only rule on pretrial submissions as a matter of law, whereas an entrapment claim is a matter of fact. You have to establish the intentions of the defendants, the intentions of the informants, uh, the conduct of the agents and things like that. So the judge pretty much just said yesterday, like this, the government's got a lot more evidence. The, de the defense has its own case. This needs to be litigated in front of a jury. I'm not going to toss the charges right now. So just just for just for our listeners, th yeah. there's kind of like two two schools of thought going on legally. One is just sort of a black and white on paper. Does it meet a threshold kind of uh, standard? And then there's a second standard. So you'll, you'll hear uh, people talk about, you know, as a matter of law which would say, well, of course, it's a matter of law. It's in court. You got a bunch of lawyers arguing about it. What do you mean? But what they mean when, when they say a matter of law is they're saying just based on the black and white letters on a piece of paper, no evidence, no, no, uh, yeah, buts, no back and forth between a, you know, a prosecutor and a defense attorney, just doesn't meet a basic standard kind of a, a test. And what, what Ken just described is, you know, something that has to go in front of a jury. And so in that case, the argument is, this is not just a question of law, this is a question of evidence. So we need both sides to present what they have. We need the attorneys to argue, we need a jury to hear it and weigh it. And, and that's why a judge will toss some stuff just based on a piece of paper. But in other areas where it's a little more complicated, where different folks say, hey, wait a minute, I want a chance to be able to explain this to a jury and get into the nitty gritty details. I want to be able to call witnesses. I want you to hear directly from you know the horse's mouth what was said or done. That's the kind of stuff that they want to argue about in court. And even if it it may not really even float, right? It may not even be good enough, but they still want the the opportunity to argue that. And that's why a judge will hold on to it uh, and and say, okay, well. We'll, we'll straighten this out once we're at trial in a courtroom. Exactly, exactly. And now, so that, that's the federal case we're talking about. There's also uh, several people were just charged with uh, state charges of providing material support. So these weren't necessarily the ringleaders, but they, they like the government alleges that they, they supported uh, the ringleaders somehow. I'm not as familiar with this case. Uh, uh, I don't think the records are just accessible online as they are with federal cases, but they are actually having a motion hearing on February 23rd in Detroit to argue the entrapment issue. So that should be a very interesting and explosive hearing 
Uh, I live in Cleveland. It's right down the road for me. So I'm going to attend that and uh, yeah, check out. That's great. That should be fascinating. Absolutely. And so, uh, so there's these Christmas day filings. And then I guess there was another uh, filing not too long ago where um, some of our listeners will recall that Senator Cruz uh, put the FBI's I think like deputy assistant director for national security, a woman named Jill Sanborn, he kind of put her through the ringer Mm -hmm. asking her very pointed questions about the FBI's involvement uh, in January 6th in the uh, incident up on the, on Capitol Hill. And the response from uh, Jill Sanborn, this, I I don't have her title exactly right. She's like executive uh, assistant director. Uh, Nonetheless, she's a senior FBI leader with national security responsibilities and her answers over and over and over again to Cruz in a string of about six or eight questions was, I can't answer that, or I won't answer that, or I'm not able to discuss that or words to that effect. And so the, 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 the will, the defendants in the Michigan case have used that, haven't they? Specifically, 10 questions Senator Cruz asked. I was, I was covering that hearing. One of the, you know, so I can understand why the FBI wouldn't want to discuss ongoing investigations, but one of Senator Cruz's questions was, well, were FBI, were feds committing violence on January 6th? And again, we're talking about faith in, in institutions. If we had a competent federal law enforcement agency, you'd think the answer would be no. Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? Us instigating January 6th? But no, she said, I can't answer that. So take what you will with that, but it's, it's certainly interesting. And so the Michigan defendants brought this up in a court filing just to argue that the government clearly has a guilty conscience, I think is the legal term, or consciousness of guilt, that it won't discuss its federal informants at all, and that they're, they're pushing for a wider discussion on the FBI's use of informants. Now, I will say that reading that filing, I believe that the defense attorney might have just is might just be throwing everything he has against the wall and seeing what sticks. Uh, it, it seems very suspect that they'll be tying January 6 evidence into this case. I will say, however, though, that in the early cases of this trial, the prosecutors were invoking January 6 uh, in early hearings where they were arguing how egregious or how wrong these Michigan defendants' conducts were. And they were saying, hey, look, like this also happened on January 6th. This is a this is a part of a wider problem. So if they're allowed to invoke January 6th, I think the defense feels like they have the right to invoke in January 6th as well. Yeah, I mean, once the prosecution opens the door to that and and tries to draw parallels of conduct and behavior. Uh, and realize, of course, all these people who are defendants uh, in Michigan, uh, it's very hard for me to believe that they went running over to the Capitol on January 6th. So it's tough to make an association there. Um, many of them were still behind bars. But yeah. I will say, if we, if we want to talk January 6th, I mentioned that the one federal informant, uh, Robeson, was the founder of the Wisconsin Three Percenters. 
Of course, the three percenters were involved in January 6th. So you got to question if if the if the FBI had the three percenters that infiltrated, how on earth would they not have foreknowledge of January 6th? Right. I mean, these are very tough questions. And I can tell you, uh, again, this is another thing sort of from my my past life as an intelligence officer, when public officials, uh, they love to use this, well, of course, you know, we can't reveal intelligence sources and methods. It's one of the things that they throw up as a shield to block answering a direct question. That is the biggest line of baloney you can possibly imagine, because no one is really asking specifically about intelligence sources and methods. Nobody wants, well, no one reasonably wants to know the actual true names of each and every recruited, you know, confidential enforce, uh, informant and, you know, the, the techniques and tactics for communicating with them and whether they had, you know, their communications plan and all those sorts of details. That, that's what that means. When I say about, talk about intelligence sources and methods, they're talking about tradecraft and they're talking about true identities of people who can lawfully and correctly be uh, kind of hidden, right? What, they are using that phrase and that expression as a, uh, as a means of dodging accountability. Uh, it's sort of like what uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the term, a Glomar response, right? And that makes yeah. reference to an old CIA case. <laughs> Done plenty of you can neither confirm nor deny the existence of any such whatever. It's baloney. This is a, a license to lie. And that's why I found Sanborn's testimony back to Cruz so wildly offensive, because this is what erodes and, and really tears at the fabric of, of a, America's trust in the FBI. Yeah, so I kind of have a theory about that Sanborn's testimony that I could float out there again, not, sure. not, as, not in my capacity as a journalist, but in my capacity as a skeptic and an observer. So by the way, I should mention Sanborn was the head of the counterterrorist uh, division during the Michigan plot. So she would certainly know one would think. But so my thought on this, the congressional hearing where they refused to say whether feds instigated January 6th was because there's all this controversy over that guy, uh, Ray Epps, who's caught on video urging protesters into the Capitol. Uh, he's at the initial breach site whispering in somebody's ear right before the attack began. And there's been a lot of speculation that this guy's a Fed. Now, we don't know that for sure, though. So uh, I, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the intelligence agencies they like to uh, uh, you know, conduct these psychological operations where they kind of put out a straw man or fake news and then everybody jumps on it and then they could see, see, you know, Ray Epps, he wasn't a Fed. Why are all these conspiracy theorists, you know, talking crazy when in right. fact there were many Feds in the crowd and Ray Epps might not have been one, but, you know, there were dozens of others. So, you know, that's that's just one you know, unfounded theory I have. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. You know? yeah, I, I mean, there are. There are useful idiots, right? right. People that uh, are sort of expendable or they're well-intentioned morons who uh, 
they think they're doing the right thing. They believe that, you know, whatever. And uh, then they may not even have malicious or ill will, you know, towards something. Yeah. It's just that they happen to be the right person at the right time and they can be exploited. And uh, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that is a piece of tradecraft. The and ability I, to. Oh, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, no, I, no, go ahead, please. I just, yeah. I, I didn't really finish my train of, of thought. I, I want So when, they right after that congressional hearing, the January 6th committee immediately released a uh, response saying unequivocally, Ray Epps is not a Fed. I actually tracked down Ray Epps's attorney, who you know, another funny coincidence, he's a former FBI agent. Shocking. Uh, yeah. So he told me that Ray Epps has been interviewed by the FBI. He's categorically not a Fed. I did ask him if he was an asset of any other intelligence agency or law enforcement agency. And he said, not to my knowledge, which is in one of those other slippery, slippery <laughs> yeah. but it's just like my theory that they, they, the government might've let this Ray Epps controversy build for months and months and months until Ted Cruz asks about it in a congressional hearing, you get all the conservatives to be like, yeah, who is Ray Epps? And then right when it reaches a favor, fever pitch, they debunk the story in a seemingly in an attempt to discredit the larger theory of federal foreknowledge, which I think there's very uh, a lot of reason to suspect federal foreknowledge. I mean, the New York Times has even reported that there was uh, undercover Fed uh, part of the Proud Boys who was texting his handlers the day of January 6th. So, yeah, yeah, I'll give you another very brief example. This is a, a true life story. I have direct firsthand knowledge of. And in fact, I got a Department of Justice Inspector General investigative counsel and two special agents uh, to investigate this. And I, and I sat in the room during the interview. So I, I know this firsthand. I'm not guessing at this. And an FBI agent had uh, made overtures to a cooperating witness to lead that witness to believe that they were a recruited asset of the Department of Justice, the FBI, and that they were uh, conducting an operation that he that this this person was accepting tasking from the FBI agent and acting on that tasking to engage with various bad actors to do stuff that would seem to be, uh, I'll be generous and I'll just say unlawful. And lots of money was involved. And the person in, in good conscience believed that they were doing what their buddy, their FBI agent told them to go do. And the FBI agent assured this person, no sweat, just follow instructions, do what we're telling you. Oh, and by the way, you know, keep all your receipts because we're going to reimburse you. We're going to make sure make sure we have your bank statement showing you made the withdrawals to pay for this and that and to do various things that were uh, horrendous. Anyway, um, it's incredible. so, So here's the trick. The FBI agent never submitted the authorization forms to recruit the guy. The FBI agent never got authority to run the operation. This was all just kind of on just winging it, just doing it. And he was just running this guy as sort of a cooperating witness without ever documenting the case, without ever getting approval to run the operation, without ever formally recruiting the guy. It was all on the cuff. And then and then the case collapsed 
all the bad guys got involved and got very upset. And uh, the case, I'm not going to go into the details of it because there's too many loose ends to this day. But the whole thing collapsed. And then I finally convinced DOJ Inspector General to go out and investigate this incredibly unlawful conduct, this criminality by the FBI agent. And guess what? Surprise, surprise. All these details came out. They were doing it all unauthorized, unapproved, unreviewed. The guy never got his money back. You know why? Because there was no approved concept. There was no approved operation, which would authorize the guy to be reimbursed. Wow. That, that's so, absolutely incredible. That's what they do. And they, I, I'm not guessing. I know this firsthand. Sure. Yeah, that reminds me of yeah, the Tom Cruise movie about Barry Seal, the CIA drug runner. I don't know if you watched the American Sure. Movie. I don't know how much truth that is, but yeah, apparently uh, the CIA had this guy, Barry Seal, running drugs to fund the, the Contras. And uh, yeah, he was arrested and the, the CIA said, yeah, who, who the hell is this guy? We don't know who he is. And kind of right. And so no one should be surprised whether we're talking about January 6th or whether we're talking about the Wolverine Watchmen or the Hutterese or maybe at this point, we can we can go back and talk about some of the people you've been talking to other cases where the FBI, either institutionally or by the by the acts of individual agents, has done some really criminal, nasty things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mentioned the 1960s case of a federal informant that is widely suspected to have instigated violence against black people. And this, this also, this spills into the 80s and 90s where uh, around the uh, Oklahoma City bombing investigation, which there's a, still a lot of questions surrounding that. Yes, there are. We were also talking about Iran-Contra and it's interesting. So I guess I'll start from the beginning. I, I've been talking to researchers of the Oklahoma City bombing case. Uh, give them a shout out. Jesse Trentadu, Roger Charles, Richard Booth, and Wendy Painting. Uh, they've done some really good work about that that whole era, and it turns out that the Reagan administration hired a uh, Vietnam War vet to train the Contras uh, down in Nicaragua to try to, you know, f fight communism. And, and once the Iran Contra scandal was exposed, the Reagan administration threw this guy under the bus and that radicalized him. And he became a big uh, right wing, if you want to call him a domestic terrorist, like he was plotting to attack uh, different uh, nuclear uh, energy sites and things like that, steal arms from the army to go blow stuff up, rob banks, uh, really, really wild stuff. And so that's kind of the origins into some of these patriot groups was, you know, former Vietnam vets who felt betrayed by their, their country. And there's a lot of question, there's a lot of connection to these groups and Timothy McVeigh. Uh, what, what the researchers found is that uh, shortly before uh, the April 19th, 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, McVeigh was seen numerous First times at this uh, city called Elohim City in Oklahoma. It's a private compound, Elohim City, you know, I think Hebrew for city of God. And this was a white supremacist or anti-government 
militia hotbed. And it was also thoroughly infiltrated with informants. Uh, one informant named Carol Howe would frequently warn the feds about a, an attack on the Murrah building, which obviously uh, McVeigh ended up uh, you know, setting off a bomb outside there. And these researchers are still trying to uh, obtain evidence from the government about this case because there's a lot of uh, suspicion that McVeigh uh, may have been aided and abetted by federal informants. I mean, right after the attack happened, the FBI was telling the public, like, John Doe number two, who's, who's we, we know about McVeigh, but who's this other guy? And I think at one point they were at, they were appealing to the public for the identity of six or seven people. Right. As the case developed, they kind of narrowed it down and said, well, no, those people don't even exist. And, you know, the theory there is that they just wanted a quick and tidy case. And it would have like this Michigan case, it would have gotten real messy, real fast. If John Doe number two was, uh, you know, brought to the court's attention. Uh, I can go a little further, uh, tying this into modern day. I, do you know who oversaw the investigation of the Oklahoma City bombing? I don't. I don't recall right now. No, Merrick Garland. <laughs> so the, the man in charge of the largest domestic terrorism investigation uh, today is also, uh, according to these researchers, Jesse Trentadue, Roger Charles, Richard Booth, and Wendy Painting, uh, he, he, they, they strongly think that he was involved in some sort of cover-up. And these people have uh, provided me with records, transcripts from some of the preliminary hearings in the Oklahoma City case, where Garland was arguing on behalf of the prosecution and the defense attorney started asking an uh, FBI agent who was testifying, like, well, did any of the witnesses see anybody else with McVeigh? And Garland immediately objects. And yeah, the researchers have a lot of questions about how he handled that case. Uh, it's absolutely fa uh, fascinating stuff. I'm not really doing it justice, but uh, that's, that's something I intend to look into uh, much more deeply, especially when this Michigan stuff dies down. Yeah, and look, you know, for any listeners who are, who are growing skeptical or saying, well, wait a minute, um, this is not uh, tinfoil hat conspiracy theory stuff. Uh, these, are th these are cases where there are court records, where there are transcripts, where there's evidence that's been produced in front of federal and state courts. So whether it's the Wolverine Watchmen, the Hutteries, Obviously, the January 6th thing is unfolding in, you know, basically week by week in front of us. Or you go back in time and you look at something like the, you know, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. You can uh, you can look at the Las Vegas shooting, uh, you know, the, the mass shooting uh, there a couple of years back. There's a lot of unanswered questions. And, and just because you're asking questions doesn't mean you're a whack job. doesn't mean that you're a crazy person or a conspiracy theorist. It simply means that you have unanswered questions and they really haven't been answered satisfactorily. I can point at the shoot down of TWA Flight 800 back in 1996. That's another case where there's a lot of very unsatisfied, unanswered questions. And there's sort of the you know official government story as to why or how this happened. Uh, but there are still legitimate hanging open questions that have never been successfully 
resolved or answered. And, and very rarely uh, is there ever any sort of accountability or any sort of uh, consequence for any sort of government misconduct or negligence. And that's why people get frustrated. And frankly, that, that's where those cracks and seams in the story, that's where people that are conspiracy theorists, that's where they jump in and they make people crazy, all right? But there's a difference between legitimate lines of inquiry for open questions that are things that are on the record and stuff that's you know on the margins and demanding accountability, demanding answers uh, is necessary in my view. And that's why uh, somebody like our guest Ken Silva is so important from the journalistic side. And I'd like to believe uh, for the last nearly 23 years, I've been at Judicial Watch. That's why Judicial Watch does what it does. We get government records and documents um, and, and we force accountability where people would rather just kind of run away from it. Uh, you know, in general, uh, records, let's put it this way, people lie, records don't. And when you can document things and show records, it makes people very uncomfortable. Exactly. And I think the notion that uh, uh, January 6th conspiracy theories, the notion that they should be scoffed at or dismissed out of hand is absolutely absurd arrogance on the behalf of people who think that because, you know, we just did a whole show on the history of this stuff. It's like you said, documented. So, yeah, people should be asking questions about what their government's doing, certainly. And asking a question isn't a bad thing. You're, you're allowed to you're allowed to actually, you know, well, good. Help explain to me if, I, if I'm so ignorant, if I'm so uh, horribly misinformed. Uh, well, then please educate me. I'm, I'm more than ready, willing and able to, to hear all the facts. And look, if you want a conspiracy in one direction, uh, then you have to allow for a conspiracy in the other direction, right? So there's people that would look at the various claims made by this congressional January 6th committee and say, that's conspiracy theory craziness, right? Exactly. It's a two-way street is what I'm trying to get across. Yeah. What, what I would tell the left-wing people who doubt these FBI uh, conspiracy theories when it relates to right-wing groups, like this is the same bureau that's sitting on mountains of Jeffrey Epstein evidence so like, there that's an injustice to Epstein's victims. And so you think that same bureau wouldn't uh, do questionable things when it comes to the right wing? Like you got to be out of your mind. Correct. And if you look at the uh, Hunter Biden's laptops, plural, of course, the FBI took those into custody in December uh, of 2019 and they had them. They were looking at them. But that also happens to be the exact same time. Uh, that uh, President Trump was being impeached over this Ukrainian phone call. So, of course, that failed. But so I ask yourself a question. If the FBI had direct knowledge from Hunter Biden of his, of his involvement in Ukraine and his dealings with Burisma, and they had the laptops with all the emails, the documents, the communications, and they sat on their hands and didn't say a word, not a peep, while they watched the president get impeached over a, a, a phonied up hysteria over a telephone call, where, where's the discretion on that? Where was the where was the requirement for the FBI to make disclosures of the information they were sitting on in Hunter Biden's laptop? Same country, same topic, same people, same everything, except in one case, you keep your mouth shut and don't take any action for, they still haven't taken any action, frankly. 
And in the other case, you watch the president get impeached over something that was completely fabricated and make-believe. I mean, we can go all day. Let's talk Ashley. What is it? Ashley Biden's diary? It's like right. describes inappropriate behavior, sexual behavior with the president and the, the FBI raids uh, James O'Keefe and Project Veritas over that diary. Like, is, is that raid an implicit authentication of the diary? And why aren't why aren't the feds going after or investigating the, the misconduct described in that document? And how many other diaries of people that get grabbed by, you know, parents or uh, uh, boyfriends, girlfriends, angry ex-spouses? How many other homes are they raiding over various diaries or papers that have been grabbed by somebody else? Yeah, we could talk all day, I'm sure. Yeah. Listen, Ken, I want to thank you very much for your time. This has been a great conversation. We started off with the Wolverine Watchmen and we we ended up doing a, a mini history of FBI corruption. But uh, our, our guest for this segment has been Ken Silva, a reporter, a fabulous reporter for the Epic Times, um, who has done all kinds of work on cybersecurity, crime, and offshore financing. He does national security, security reporting in particular, and that has to do with everything under the sun from uh, Department of Justice and law enforcement activities to uh, various intelligence activities, the Department of Defense, military issues, the whole gamut, the whole range of national security issues. Ken does tremendous reporting on, and I encourage all of you to go to the Epic Times and go and read his reporting, follow his work. Um, this has uh, been our, our latest edition, our latest uh, report from uh, On Watch, our Judicial Watch podcast. It takes a deep dive on stories and investigations that are underreported or ignored. Please, if you use Spotify or one of the other platforms to to uh, to look at very or to listen to various podcasts, please go there. Give us a rating. Share this podcast with your friends and family. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation. Ken, I want to thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you again so much. This, this was a real pleasure. Ken Silva with the Epic Times talking about the. Wolverine Watchman and the story of the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.